to preach and, and to appeal to your spiritual imagination uh, to what the Bible calls the evidence of things unseen, to your faith. That there might be, there just might be a way in which God wants to work in your life and through your life to accomplish things that you have not yet imagined. By the way, I'm Chris Oaks. Nice to meet you. This is my uh, first Sunday that I've gotten to spend since relaunch uh, in Gresham Middle School in this room right here because usually I'm down the hall to the left, two doors on the right, in a, a little room that is occupied by a lot of crazy dreamers. Uh, the uh, Explore and Elevate classes uh, are part of Kids Life here, and I'm the Kids Life Director for Life Church Knoxville, and usually... What we're doing right now is we're singing loud worship songs and we're throwing popcorn at each other's mouths trying to get it in. We're stuffing our faces in whipped cream. And uh, most importantly, we're trying our best to dig deep into God's Word to help lay a foundation so these kids, so your kids, so my kids, can become fully developed followers of Jesus Christ. That's our goal. Now... In my opinion, everybody in this room could benefit from spending time with the kids in kids' life. Proof positive right now, because you're just sitting there. Some of you aren't even smiling, but I want you to smile. And here's why. I don't just say that because we need passionate, committed volunteers, because we do. But the reason I say that is because Jesus said it. He said this, unless you change and become like little children... You will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Those are tough words. Unless you change and become like little children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. It sounds like something a kid's ministry director would make up. It's the words that came out of Jesus' mouth. Kids have active imaginations. They dream crazy, awesome dreams. They believe at young ages that anything is possible. I'm reminded of a story that Robert Benson tells in a book called Between the Dreaming and the Coming True. He says this, I have some photographs of my daughter taken on a mountain climbing expedition of sorts. She was two at the time and had traveled halfway up a mountain in the snow and ice while riding on my back in a backpack before cooler, wiser heads prevailed and she was sent back to the bottom with her mother and grandmother and aunt who were looking for a good reason to head back to the fireplace anyway. My father and sister and I finished the climb. Two months later, my father was in the hospital dying, and I was showing him the photos from the climb. The photos showed the face of a little girl who was thrilled with the whole ordeal and ready to climb anything, anywhere, anytime. One of the last things he ever said to me was a warning. Don't let them get to her. He was afraid that if one were not careful, well-meaning grown-ups could well take from her the spirit that made her face shine that day in the dark cold of the mountain. And as time passed, they might take away the things a child loves most and believes the strongest and cannot explain. Don't let them get to her. And if we're honest, we as grown-ups, most of us, they got to us. They got to us. A long time ago, We lost the shining face, the thrill, the readiness to climb anything, anywhere, any time. For six weeks, we've been in a series here at Life Church Knoxville called 
God of the underdogs. We've been talking about people like David and Esther and Jacob and Gideon and the way that that people who didn't seem like good choices for God to use actually were the ones that he most wanted to do his work through. The odds were against them, but we're learning that God does his best work with underdogs. I got a that's right and a uh uh-huh. One of them was from my wife, so... That counts double, but still, it's not enough. God does His best work with underdogs. We're learning that we're all underdogs. In, in fact, I come from a very charismatic background. If you scream and jump up and down, it will not. will not do anything but excite me. So, feel free. He convinces us that our weaknesses are actually the very things that He can most use to display His strength. Just ask and today's underdog is no different he was the cousin of jesus and his story started before he was even born his father was a preacher who saw an angel while in the temple one day the angel told zachariah that his barren wife who was past the age of bearing children anyway would become pregnant in spite of her age and have a son who would prepare the people of israel for the lord his name was to be john we call him john the baptist Because he baptized people in his ministry. John was filled with the Holy Spirit while still in his mother's womb. So why would we call somebody who had that distinction, the only time that's ever been recorded that that happened, why would we call someone like that an underdog? Well, he was a preacher's kid. I don't know, I'm actually a public school teacher's kid. So I don't know what that's like, but in a few years, ask my son. He'll be able to tell you, yep, the odds were against me. Matthew tells us uh, this. If you need another reason, John's clothes were made of camel's hair, and he had a leather belt around his waist. His food was locusts and wild honey. Underdog? This is a weird dude. And being filled, wouldn't wouldn't you agree, being filled with the Holy Spirit as a fetus, that might set a high level of expectation for your life. In fact, when people considered all the miraculous events surrounding John's conception and birth, Scripture tells us in Luke 166, everyone who heard this wondered about it, asking, what then is this child going to be? For the Lord's hand was with him. That's a high level of expectation for a kid, for a preacher's kid. But his dad and mom did something right. John the Baptist grows up, and when we see him emerge as an adult, as a preacher, he's in the wilderness, and yet his face is shining. And he is proclaiming the message, preparing the way for the Messiah. He's ready to do the impossible. He's pursuing a radical dream that God has a better way to reveal himself to the world. He dreams of a just society, of a people who reflect the true love and compassion of the almighty God. Where did he get a dream like that? Where does a radical dream come from? For John, we can take a pretty good guess where his dream came from. His dad prophesied or spoke over him before he was born. And the words his dad says are important not just 
because they point to an amazing future, but also because they aren't all that original. Have you ever as a parent thought, well, you know, I really need to come up with some original words, some original ideas for my kid. John's dad didn't have a lot of original stuff to say over him. Almost all of his words go back to the book as we have it of Isaiah, to the scroll of Isaiah. Here's what, here's what Zechariah says. And you, my child, remember, he's not born yet. Zechariah says, and you, my child, will be called a prophet of the Most High, for you will go on before the Lord to prepare the way for him. That's from Isaiah 40, chapter 3. To give his people the knowledge of salvation. That's Isaiah 33, 6. Through the forgiveness of their sins, because of the tender mercy of our God, by which the rising sun, that's Isaiah 41, 25, will come to us from heaven to shine on those living in darkness. That's Isaiah 9 and 2. And in the shadow of death, again, Isaiah 9 and 2, to guide our feet into the path of peace. That's Isaiah 59, 8. Apparently, Zechariah had read Isaiah a time or two. Apparently, Zechariah, as as a preacher, it's not odd sometimes to find preachers who aren't that um, excited about the Word of God. Zechariah wouldn't be one of those guys. Zechariah had so immersed himself in Isaiah and the language of the prophet that when he prophesies over his son, that's what comes out. It's amazing if we spend time putting the Word of God into our lives, reading and even memorizing and spending time day after day putting God's Word in. It's amazing sometimes what will begin to come out. And for Zechariah, the words that came out were I... Isaiah, the prophet's words, and it worked. When people came to John and asked, who are you? What do you say about yourself? The Gospel of John says, John replied in the words of Isaiah, the prophet. What do you know? I am the voice of one calling in the desert. Make straight the way of the Lord. That's where radical, God-sized, crazy dreams come from. That's where radical, God-sized dreams come from. They have their source in the Word of God. Zechariah and John aren't the only examples we have of being steeped in the Scriptures. Remember Jonah? He runs from the call of God and ends up rescued. Yeah, rescued by a big... And from the fish's belly, Jonah cries out in repentance to God. It's chapter 2 of Jonah, just four chapters. The second chapter, the beginning of that chapter, talks about how he cries from the depths of the belly of this fish. And it's often called Jonah's psalm, but it's not Jonah's psalm. He stole it. In seven verses, he, he refers no less than 12 times to the psalms. Even quoting from a psalm that Jesus... and. And let's, let's talk about that. In, in, uh, in, in his commentary on Jonah, Hal Seed writes, his memorized scripture, listen, his memorized scripture sustained him, gave him hope, and kept his mind occupied and fruitful during three very harrowing days. It's an understatement. And yet, what was it that comes out of Jonah in the belly of the well? He's crying out, and all he knows... Uh, At his lowest point, all he knows is, 
I'm going to patch together some of the prayers that I've prayed over and over again. And maybe God will hear my prayer. Immersing ourselves in Scripture. Please hear this. Immersing ourselves in Scripture is the very foundation of what it means to seek God and to follow Jesus. It's the foundation. God's people have always been people of the Word. First the oral oral Word, and then both the oral and the written Word. Early on, the writers of Scripture referred to meditating, or literally to chewing. It's like a lion has a bone, and it's that... Uh, Maybe I shouldn't use a lion. It's like one of you all goes to the steakhouse and the steak comes and you cut into it and you see it for the first time. It's that deep, that deep noise that comes from within. Mm. That's meditating on Scripture. It's opening the Scriptures and looking to see what God has already spoken and going, "Mm, this is going to be good. Eugene Peterson writes, Christians feed on Scripture. Holy Scripture nurtures the holy community as food nurtures the human body. Christians don't simply learn or study or use Scripture. We assimilate it. We take it into our lives in such a way that it gets metabolized into acts of love, cups of cold water, missions into all the world, healing and evangelism and justice in Jesus' name, hands raised in adoration of the Father, feet washed in the company of the Son. He goes on to say what we must never be encouraged to do, although all of us are guilty of it over and over, is to force Scripture to fit our experience. Our experience is too small. It's like trying to put the ocean in a thimble. I want to submit to you today that what we want to do is not submit Scripture to our lives, but to submit our lives to Scripture. Not try to get the ocean into our little thimble of a life, but to put our lives into the great, vast ocean of Scripture. Your experience is too small. You need a bigger... Please, please hear You need a bigger measuring stick for what God wants to do in your life than your experience. And the scriptures open us up to that and allow us to begin to dream crazy dreams that are founded and grounded in what God has already done in history. We can't detach ourselves from the history of what God has done. It's been a slow but steady and very real process of Him revealing Himself through the ages, and here we stand in the 21st century, and the answer is no different than it was uh, six millennia ago. God's words are the foundation of everything good in our lives. I got a few of you now. Jesus modeled, modeled it for us in the wilderness. When he was tempted by Satan, his three retorts all came from the Torah, specifically from Deuteronomy. He had been chewing on Torah. And when he was on the cross, he quotes from the Psalms. The scriptures were such a part of Jesus that he needs not make up new words when he's in distress. But he goes back to the words that have guided those before him. Jesus, the son of God. When he's in distress. It's God's word that comes out of his mouth. It's the scriptures that we have. 
that even 2,000 years ago are coming out of his mouth. I'm preaching to someone today who, who has a radical dream down in your heart, but you're not sure that it could ever come out and it's become just a flicker and you're not sure how to fan it back into flame. I want to challenge you today to immerse yourself in the Scriptures. Let them be a spark. Let the Scriptures become a lamp unto your feet and a light unto your path. That's where crazy dreams become radical, seemingly impossible dreams. Chew on God's Word. Meditate on His Word. Get it deep down inside of you and watch how your faith and your dreams and your, your hope begin to grow. Now, we can't just talk about where dreams come from. We also have to talk about where dreams lead. What should be the end goal of a radical, God-given, crazy dream? Jesus leaves us, John leaves us without a doubt. Radical kingdom dreams point to Jesus. He's the just one, the compassionate one, the exact representation of God. The, the Gospel of John records it this way. There came a man who was sent from God. His name was John. He came as a witness to testify concerning that light so that through him all men might believe. And then verse 8, he himself was not the light. He came only as a witness to the light. Turn to your neighbor and say, I am not the light. If your husband or wife is sitting next to you, Turn to them and look them very deeply into the eye and say even louder, I am not the light. Because sometimes we act like we're the light, right? Just look this way, baby. But I am not the light. I am a witness of the light. On my best days, I can reflect the light. And John's dream just points to Jesus. Radical dreams can only point in one direction. So we know the source of a radical dream, always grounded in Scripture, and we know where a radical dream has to lead, the final destination, always leading to Jesus, the full revelation of who God is. But what does that dream require? One word, say it with me, everything. Everything. What does the dream require? That's what it requires. It's a, a song that came out in the 90s, a, a, a Christian singer. Some of y'all actually knew him before he was a, a Christian artist. John Elefante was a singer with Kansas, but he sang a song that's lodged itself in my brain. And even 20 years later, it's still in there. But he, he said, all you have to do is call on him, brother, and lay down your life. That's all. Just to call on him. And lay down your life. What does it require? Everything. Napoleon Hill realized it. Great achievement is usually born of great sacrifice and is never the result of selfishness. The author of Peter Pan, J.M. Barry, realized that he said dreams do come true if only we wish hard enough. And sometimes we want to close the book there and say, all right, if we just wish hard enough. No, what J.M. Barry said was you can have anything in life if you will sacrifice everything else for it. What about John, this radical, dreaming underdog himself? What about John? 
What do you have to say, John? He must become more and more, the New Living Translation says, and I must become less and less. That's not how I had it pictured in my mind. I I didn't know that this dream would actually have to suppress my desires and my hopes and my goals in order for God's uh, to shine through, but that is how it works. That's how it happens. That's how God's dreams get accomplished in this world is we have to be willing to say, not my will, yours be done. Jesus wraps the discussion by saying, I tell you the truth, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. You must be willing to lay down every small passion and pursue pursue the one radical dream God has birthed in you. You have to be willing to sell every little pearl in your life when you've got that great pearl and you've been captured by it. I like my little pearls. Don't you? I like my I like my little pearls. I like my little things and I want the big one and the little ones, right? Jesus tells the parable and says, "Now when you really see, when you really see the pearl of great price, you go home and you look for pearls you may have lost and say, I'm going to get rid of everything and pursue the one It's only at that point that you'll begin to understand the reward. The source of the dream, that's the scriptures. That's the word of God. The destination of the dream, there's only one place. That's Jesus Christ. What will the dream require? Well, that's the easiest one in your notes, right? Everything just takes it all. But only when you're willing to give up everything do you begin to get a glimpse of what the reward is. Immersed in Scripture, focused on Jesus, laying everything down, you will realize that you were never really an underdog in the first place. You were never really an underdog in the first place. God will take that radical dream He's placed within you and He will change the world. Remember, the crazy ones change things. They push the human race forward. The ones crazy enough to think they can change the world are the ones who do. Think of it this way. The high jump had been an Olympic event uh, since the late 19th century, and competitors have figured out that the best way to go over the high jump bar was something like this. They would go, and they would jump, and they would go face down, and they would kind of kick their legs like scissors, and while they were in the middle of it, it looked like they were straddling the bar. It was called... Creatively enough, the straddle. And this got them to uh, uh, over five feet and even around six feet uh, where they could jump. And then in the 1960s, a little high school boy, well, he wasn't little, he was actually fairly tall, but a high school boy started uh, competing in track and field, and he wanted to do the high jump, but he wasn't 
coordinated enough to go over face down and straddle mode and kick in his legs. So he said, I'm going to have to figure out a different way to do this. His name was Dick Fosbury. And so what he decided to do, because the, the rules didn't say you had to go one certain way, it just said you have to go off one foot. So he starts running and, and figuring it out and working his way around and finally realizes I can go off one foot and I can go over on my back. Now, when he was trying to straddle, he couldn't even get five feet. Five feet high, which is only about this high up on the stage, about this place to me, five feet high, about right here. He couldn't even do that. Some of y'all could do that, right? He couldn't do that. Could, couldn't get his legs to move right, whatever. So he started experimenting and going over with his face up, with his back down, kind of like that. And you'll see, oddly enough, uh, who the top name on the scoreboard is. It's Fosbury. And the boy who couldn't go five feet using the, the way that everybody else said it had to be done now is at seven feet two and a quarter inches. And here's what was funny. A reporter saw him do this, oddly enough. It was 1968 in Knoxville, Tennessee, the NCAA championship, track and field. And he goes over and, and goes over with his back first, and a reporter goes back and says, it looks like he's flopping like a fish in a boat. By the way, he won the championship that day. They called it the Fosbury Flop. A few months later, he was on the Olympic team, and the Fosbury flop got him the gold medal at 7 feet 4 inches. And here's what's interesting. Four years later, at the 1972 Olympics, there were 40 competitors in the high jump. 28 of them were flopping like fish in a boat. Because uh, there had been a standard, in fact, look at the graph, there had been a standard, the western roll, I didn't even go back that far, there was the western roll and then the straddle, but it only took us up, not even a meter, but then it slowly, gra gradually moved up after a long place and moved up a little bit more, and then in 68, Fosbury starts flopping. And look at the, the way that it changes in just a short amount of time there, we go from two point. Two to over uh, to almost 2.3 meters, uh, and then it continues to go. In fact, today you'll hardly ever see anybody in the high jump competition who doesn't flop. And that's what God wants to do with the dreams that He gives us those crazy dreams, those radical dreams, the dreams where everybody else says, No, that's not the way it can happen, that's not the way it's supposed to work. What God wants to do is to take the dream that he's given you and make it the baseline by which everything else is judged. You say, that sounds nuts. That sounds crazy. You're exactly right. I got it from Scripture. Listen to this. Jesus says about his cousin John, I tell you, among those born of woman, there is no one greater than John. Jesus says, if you go back all through the Scriptures, up through this point in time when Jesus was standing, talking to the, the mass of people that were surrounding him. He says, I tell you the truth, of those born of women, there is no one greater than John. What about Moses? What about Elijah? What about David? What about Isaiah? What about all of those guys? Well, I think we would all say that they're ranked pretty high up there, right? 
Jesus says, John ranks, outranks all of them. There's nobody you can find, and what we have is our Old Testament, there's nobody you can find that ranks ahead of John. He's the one that cried out and prepared the way for Jesus to come on the scene. Jesus says he's the greatest of all who have been. But Jesus doesn't stop. We, we understand that, and we, we say, all right, well, you know, that's kind of interesting, but I can take that, but Jesus continues, and he says this. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. Did you hear that? Of all those born of women, there is none greater than John. Looking backward, there's nobody greater than John. But looking forward, the one who is the least in the kingdom is greater than John. How does that happen? John has this crazy, outrageous dream, this extreme dream that drives him into the wilderness and he eats weird and he dresses weird and he talks weird and he expects weird. But Jesus says going forward, that's the baseline commitment for a person in the kingdom of God. That's the baseline. We're all supposed to be crazy, outrageous dreamers. Try it. I got three over here. Let me try it over here. We're all supposed to be crazy, outrageous dreamers. That's what we're supposed to be. That's the baseline. God says it doesn't have to be crazy and outrageous anymore. Jesus says going forward, that's what I expect. Here's to the crazy ones. Here's to the ones that are willing to think outside of religious institutions and established ways of doing things in an effort to see the kingdom come in this earth as it is in heaven. We come in ahead of John just for deciding, I'm going to take you up, God, on your offer. I'm going to follow Jesus. That's a pretty good jump, isn't it? From the back of the line to the front, just by saying, I'll follow Jesus. bow your head this morning I'm not sure I see several faces I don't recognize I see some that I do but I I didn't get the report off the computer this morning telling me who's right with God and who's not you know there's no report with your head bowed and your eyes closed I wonder if you'll think just for a minute think about what Jesus said 